Good morning, church. Welcome here. It's been a joy to worship with you. Uh, We just sang there that we will rest in His unchanging grace. And I don't know how you feel right now, what you came in here with. I'm sure some of you came in with some heaviness, maybe some hard things you're carrying, some um, struggles, some anxieties. Maybe you're coming in here with just a real lightness and a real joy. And um, either way, God is unchanging. Uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever you're bringing with you, um, God has something for you this morning um, to speak into your life. And uh, I just pray that He gives us the, the ears to hear what He has for us. And even as I'm up here talking, I'm looking down. And, and I know Kathleen doesn't want me to draw attention to her. Does she? You don't seem like the sort of person that wants me to talk about you. I'm sorry. When you have open heart surgery, and then when you're in church like two weeks later, I got to talk about you. Okay? So, uh, before you... Hold on. I haven't got there yet. Okay? There will be a time to clap. But um, um, I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised to see you. So, many of you will know Kurt and Elaine, and maybe you'll know their, their daughter, young woman, Kathleen, over here. Um, she was uh, dancing up a storm at a wedding up in Gimli on a Saturday two weeks ago, and 24 hours later, she was on the operating table, open-heart surgery, chest cavity wide open, and uh, not sure if you were going to make it. And by God's grace, you're here. And uh, we, we had a lot of people praying for you. I want you to know that. Lots of people praying for you. And we we're just so delighted and thankful to God that He brought you through that when, when uh, it didn't look like you'd make it, and you're here, and, uh, and recovering well, and so we, we thank God for that, and so glad uh, to celebrate what he's done. Now you can clap, all right? Yeah, worthy of rejoicing for sure. Um, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? This is a coin, and I know you're like, Rusty, come on. Lay off it. But uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm a coin collector and I like to handle these things. This is actually a 50 cent piece. But every coin has how many sides? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, every coin has two sides, right? And so there's this saying, right? Well, that's kind of two sides of the same coin. You've heard that saying, uh, which is just a way of saying like there are sometimes things that don't seem like they go together. Maybe they don't seem like they're compatible. They might even seem like they're opposites, but actually they, they are companions. In fact, maybe they're, they, they, they belong together. They're two sides of one coin. Now, if Jesus is a coin, what are the two sides of the Jesus coin? If you've been here a few weeks, maybe you know the answer that John provides. The two sides of the Jesus coin are Jesus is grace and Jesus is truth. And um, we've been looking at one verse in particular in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Now, John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of the guys that knew him best, that heard all of his teachings, saw the miracles, saw him die, met the risen Jesus, saw him ascend to heaven, and he records the account of Jesus' life and teaching that we know as the Gospel of John. And he begins it, uh, we see here in, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, with a statement about Jesus. This is what John says about Jesus. He says, the Word, 
That's a title he's already given to Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He is God's revelation of himself. The Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of, say it with me, grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace, and Jesus is full of truth, and so this whole series, we're talking about how Jesus is not or, not grace or truth, not sometimes grace and sometimes truth, not half grace and half truth, but Jesus is always fully grace and fully truth. And because He is, we too, as those who follow Him, we are called to be and people, not or people, to live lives too that are full of grace and full of truth. And sometimes that's really hard. We live in the tension of how to not let go of either of those, but to cling to both, believing that they are not opposites, they are not enemies, but they are companions. And so the big idea of this series that um, we, we kind of keep saying each week is this. That grace and truth are not competitors. They are not opposites. That we have to choose one or the other. They are companions. They are companions. We always are to have both. For truth without grace, we've said, is, is to live a critiquing life. Grace without truth is just to affirm people and leave everybody right where they are. But grace plus truth is restoration. And Jesus came to restore, right? He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to heal the broken. Jesus is and. Um, love lives at the intersection of truth and grace. And I'm going to keep saying that because we live in a world that's going to tell you at times that love and truth are not compatible. And maybe you've heard that before from someone. And hey, if you're honest, maybe you've even said it. Something like, well, who are we to say what is right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false? We're just called to love people because Jesus is all about love. Which, of course, is true. Jesus is all about love, right? And what he shows us in his life is that love is truth and grace together. We cannot un untether love from truth because truth brings, remember last week we said God is truth and truth brings, please tell me someone remembered, truth brings life. The truth is always the good because truth brings life. This is why we cannot, we cannot deny the truth, we cannot speak untruth, we cannot let go of the truth. We need to hold to the truth and proclaim that God, God's truth, whether it's fashionable or unfashionable, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. I think there was a movie once you know, called An Inconvenient Truth. Right? Uh, the truth brings life. And so last week we, we talked about truth. What does it mean that Jesus is full of truth? What does it look like for us, too, to be those who are people of truth? And I said there that we are called to be no less than people of truth, but we are called to be more than people of truth. And so this morning, we're going to look at the other side of that coin. We're going to look at grace this morning. We're going to ask, try to find an answer to the question, what is grace and why is grace so important? So if last week I shared with you that 
I was kind of struck with the word and, and we threw that word up on the screen, and it's a kind of a, a mundane, seemingly insignificant word, and yet in this context, and is such a powerful, remarkable word. If there's a word this week that, I, that I'm just kind of struck by, it, it's, it's the word but, okay? One T, but, uh, and, and I don't know if I'll ever do it, but the thought has come to my mind. Not all my thoughts are good thoughts. The thought has come to my mind. I, I would love to preach a sermon series called The Best Butts in the Bible. I just, is that appropriate? There's some really good butts in the Bible. And if, and if I were to ever preach that series, probably the first one I would preach about, the first butt, is the one in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is Paul's words to not just the church in Ephesus, but, but to us here today as followers of Jesus. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, of God's wrath. Let's not go past that too quick. All of us were, and maybe some of us still are, dead in our sin. No spiritual heartbeat. No hope. Deserving of God's wrath. But. I love this word here. But. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by, say it with me, grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and He seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We see this stark contrast. The first four verses, it's all about you. You were dead in your sins. You followed uh, the ways of the world. You satisfied the cravings of your flesh and its desires. You were deserving of wrath, but... And after that, it's God. But God, because of His mercy, God made you alive. God seated you with Christ in the heavens. God has shown you the incomparable riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. God has saved you by His grace. What is grace? Okay, the but is grace. Grace, I mean, if you just want to boil it down to a simplest def definition, because we're, you know, I'm a simple guy, we're simple people, grace is just simply undeserved favor. It's getting something better than you deserve. 
It's an inclination to treat people better than they deserve. That's grace. That word grace in in the Greek here, it's the same word from which we get gift. It's not something you earn. What we earned was God's wrath in our sin. What we earned was His just, just judgment. But God in His grace has saved us. God is grace. Last week we we saw God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth, but God is also grace. I mean, back when God is kind of introducing Himself to His people, thousands of years ago on some mountain in the Sinai Peninsula, Moses has an encounter with God. And, you know, there was all sorts of different versions of God that people believed in back in those times and today. God wants to set the record straight. He's not just God. He's going to reveal His personal character, who He really is, His nature. And so He says about Himself to Moses, He says, I am the Lord. That's really just the personal name, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, the passion, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. I am the gracious God. God is grace. In other words, grace is not something that God does from time to time. Grace is something that God is in His very nature. Okay, God has a bent towards sinners. What, this, what grace means is that there is an inclination in God to treat sinners better than they deserve to be treated. And we see this grace of God reach its full expression in Jesus, in His coming, to take on flesh, in His going to the cross and on the cross bearing the burden of our sin paying the debt that we owed to God, really just taking on God's just judgment that should have been put on us. He took it. He absorbed it on our behalf. Not because we deserved it or earned it, but because God is grace. He has an inclination to treat sinners better than they deserve. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is God demonstrating His love. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, throw it up there. If I get a tattoo, maybe it's going to be this one. I don't know where I'll put it. Any ideas? Some old lady in the last service thought the lower back. I didn't feel that was appropriate, but... 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul talking to the church, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Jesus lays down Himself. The one who possesses all glory is worthy of all worship. He humbles Himself. He takes the form of a servant. He comes to to earth. He's mocked and He's spat on and He's beaten and He's crucified. He makes himself poor so that poor sinners like us might be rich. That's grace. He says, you know the grace of the Lord. And so if you're the sort of person that likes acronyms, 
I think this is a pretty good one. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God treating sinners better than they deserve. Why is it so important? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. It's because without it, we'd all still be dead. Without God's grace, we would still be dead in our sins. We need it, every single one of us, without exception. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no way to be saved. There is no way to be forgiven. There is no way to have your guilt and your shame resolved. There is no way to have life, abundant life now and eternal life, except by the grace of God. It's grace that saves us. That's why grace is just so fundamental to our... I, I, don't, I won't even talk about it anymore because it is just so fundamental to our faith, right? There is no salvation apart from the grace of God. His inclination to treat us better than we deserve. So, so in the rest of our time here together, like what does it look like for us then to be like our Lord, to live lives full of grace? And I want to go to a story that I think illustrates this fairly well. And we'll talk about a couple other encounters Jesus has. And I, I want to give you four ideas of, of, or, 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 or principles that I think we need to um, embrace in order to live lives of grace. So there's this encounter that Jesus has um, at this party. Jesus liked to party. We often find him at these celebrations. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 48, we get this, this encounter Jesus has at this party. Let me read it for you. It says, when one of the Pharisees, a Pharisee was just like one of the religious leaders of the day, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's kind of mumbling under his breath here, right? <clears throat> if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then Jesus turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? We'll come back to those words. I came into your house, Simon. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins 
are forgiven. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Whoever has been forgiven much loves much, Jesus says. What's, what's the point? Is he trying to tell Simon, well, the reason that she loves me a lot is because she had a lot of sin that I've forgiven. And the reason that you don't seem to love me a lot is because you don't have a lot of sin for me to forgive. Is he just explaining the different reactions? No, that's not what he's doing. He's trying to make clear to Simon that um, he does not have a sense of how great his own sin is. If he knew, if he knew the forgiveness of God on him, he would love Jesus. He would respond to Jesus the way this woman did. But he does not have a sense of the greatness of his need for the mercy of God. And so in this story, I think the first thing that we need to see in order to live lives of grace is this. We need to see our need for grace, God's grace, not just once at one point, but every single day. We are in utter need of the grace of God. This is what I want to tell you. Nobody you will ever meet needs God's grace more than you. Nobody. There's no debt that anybody owes you that is greater than the debt that you owed God. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 18 when, when Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive the brother who sins against me? Even seven times? And Jesus says what? Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Even more, Peter. And then he tells him a story. There was a, there was a, a, a servant who had owed a great debt to a master. In fact, if you do the math, it was 10,000 talents. A talent is a bag of gold. I did the math this morning. $8 billion. How did the servant accumulate a debt of $8 billion? That's a lot of gambling. I don't know how somebody did that. A servant, $8 billion? There's a story there, right? But Jesus is trying to make a point. He's making a point of the size of our debt to God because of our sin and our utter need for His grace. The master has pity on the servant and forgives him this massive debt, and that servant goes out to find somebody else who owes him a little, and he cannot forgive him, and he demands it from him, and he throws that man in jail. And it's a story to illustrate the point that we need to go through life aware of the greatness of our need for God's grace and how great it is that the, the, the grace that He has given to us. Because I think sometimes we forget that. I don't know about you, but I do. It's easy for me to kind of, you know, comp- like, I, like, hey, I'm not Hitler and I'm not Mother Teresa. I, I hope I'm a little closer to the Mother Teresa end. You know, but we kind of, we look around us, we kind of slot ourselves into some sort of ranking system, like Simon was doing here, oblivious to the fact that the water that we swim in is grace. The air that we breathe as Christians, every breath is grace. None of it is deserved or merited. Just like the fish that lives in water, doesn't it sometimes forgets that it needs water? So the same thing for us, especially if we've been on this journey with God, walking in in faith in Christ for a while, it's easy for us to be like a Simon and just forget how great our need is for the mercy of God. 
So we need to be reminded. We need to remind ourselves regularly and, 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 and praise God regularly for the grace that He has and gives to us each day. And if that's true, then nobody's sin should bother you more than your own sin. So the first thing we need is, is we need to see our need for God's grace all the time. And the second thing I think we see in the story is that we need to see other people before we speak. We need to see before we speak. Uh, Simon here, he was quick to speak. This woman walks in uh, and he's speaking. He's not speaking to her, you'll notice. The religious people, they never actually speak to the person. They always speak about the person. So, so Simon, he, he, he mumbles under his breath right away about this woman who's, he, he identifies as a sinful woman. Obviously, she had a reputation. This was a woman that the people in this area knew, a sinful life. The inference is kind of like this was a woman who lived a life of sexual sin. She's kind of become, I think, over the years, kind of like maybe seemed to be a prostitute. We don't know for sure. Right? But this is someone who lived a life that had a reputation as a sinner, and that's what Simon saw when he came in. Simon saw her as a problem and not as a person. Don't we tend to reduce people to labels? I don't know about you, but I can do this. We, we can see somebody and right away, like Simon seeing this woman, right away, you have a category and a label, Right? that you reduce them to, and you make quick judgments on that, right? Rich people, just a rich person, right? It's a way of excusing the way that we treat them. Just a rich person, just a poor person. Get your act together. Pull up your bootstraps. Just a boomer, okay, boomer, right? Just old people, old people. Oh, those teenagers, those young people. Ugh. Just white, just privileged white people. Pick category. First Nations people. We, we so easily reduce people to labels, I think. And this is what Simon and the Pharisees often are doing. When they see someone, they just see a problem, and they don't actually see a person. But Jesus saw, he saw problems, he saw sins, but he saw beneath it. He saw, and he looked for the person, because Jesus loves the person. And so he says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Like he, he I, I think he's trying to say, Simon, look, look at her. She's right in front of you. Look. What do you see, Simon? I think what Jesus is showing us here in the way that he lived is, what grace looks like is it's, it's this attempt, it's this desire to seek to, 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 to see another, to understand, 
to seek to understand who they are, to know them, where they're coming from, their experiences that have shaped them, to, to, to listen to them, to not have the answer too quick because you, you may not have the right answer unless you really know the person. To listen, to ask questions. Do you, do you really see the person? Are you looking and are you listening? This is what Jesus did, which I think is why back in John chapter 8, we talked about that story the last couple of weeks a little bit. You remember that woman was caught in an act of adultery um, and, and the Pharisees dragged her out. Would have been quite a scene, right? They dragged her out into the, into the court, into the public. They threw her on the ground in front of Jesus and they said, Lord, what do you think we should do with them? Um, Moses said in the law that we ought to stone a woman like this. What do you think, Jesus? And then we have something really interesting. We have Jesus not talking. He doesn't say, well, I'll tell you what. This is what you need to do. It says that he got on it. Well, I don't know if it says it. What does it say here? He bent down. Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to uh, said to them, hey, if any of you are without sin, you throw this first stone. None of them quite fit that qualification, so one by one they left. And then after a while, Jesus turns to the woman. You know, once again, the Pharisees never talked to the woman. They talked about the woman, but they never talked to the woman. And uh, he says, um, woman, uh, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and lead your life of sin. What is Jesus doing kneeling, bending down, and not talking, not responding, just being silent for an extended period of time before he answers. I'd like to ask him that. And I think one day I will. Like, what were you doing and what was the picture? But what we know he wasn't doing is he, was, he wasn't scrambling to find an approach or an answer. Like sometimes we can do, right? Like when my wife says something to me and I pretend I don't hear her because I don't have an answer to the question yet, you ever, you ever do this? Right? And, and, and so then she'll ask a couple times, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to form a good answer. And then finally, when I, when I have it ready, I'm like, oh, what did you say? Were you saying something? That's not what Jesus is doing here, right? I, I think he's being instructive. He's doing the same thing he did in, do you really see the person? You are so quick to talk. You're so quick to, to give advice, to give truths, to make judgments. You haven't even paused to think. You haven't even sought to know. So I think that's what Jesus is doing there. He's showing us that now what does grace look like? It's, it's this inclination to not see, not, not see people as, as problems but as persons which means to put in the time and the energy to, 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 to know, to understand, to listen, to ask questions, to have a relationship, to go for lunch, to try to understand before you speak. You know, I grew up in Medicine Hat, Alberta. You ever been to Medicine Hat? Beautiful place. Well, you lived in Medicine Hat, didn't you? <clears throat> Medicine Hat, what a weird name. Well, it's named Medicine Hat because I don't know if it's like a legend or a true story, but a medicine man of like the Cree or the Blackfoot, right? Like he lost his hat in the Saskatchewan River and it got found washed up on the river. And at that point, that's where Medicine Hat started. And so the flag of Medicine Hat, it's a blue flag with a white 
uh, circle, and, and in that white circle is the head of the medicine man wearing his medicine hat, right, with like a buffalo horns. And um, so it, it's kind of like uh, the brand of medicine hat. It's the world's largest teepee. That's the one thing you maybe know you drive by and there's the world's largest teepee, which is kind of interesting because I grew up there and I ne never ne met a native person there. Um, well, yeah, maybe the odd one, but I didn't have any relationships with anybody that would have uh, been a First Nations person. That's kind of what this town, this city is all about. Um, but, and some of you, you're, you're here and that, that's a part of your, your identity, your, your heritage. Um, but, you know, I, I, September 30th is Truth and Reconciliation Day, this Saturday. You know that? And I think that's related to just all the discoveries and, and coming to grips with, um, you know, what happened in the residential school system. You know, all, all some of the terrible things that were perpetrated on, on those, that, those communities and on those children. And, like, honestly, if I'm just being brutally honest here, like, growing up, I had a certain picture, right? Because we know statistically that, that people from a First Nations background have, have higher prevalences of certain brokenness, whether it's maybe addiction or whether it's, um, you know, single parent home or, or what, whatever that is, right? Disease. And um, so I had, I had kind of a, a certain attitude that I had and that had been formed not because I'd necessarily even had relationships with people. I hadn't. I think that was the problem. Um, but just from stuff I saw, right, stuff I heard um, from others, stereotypes and, and, you know, jokes I heard. And if I were to be honest, I would look back and I like the, maybe the jokes I would have laughed at or said and the things that I would have felt like, I guess the word for that would be racism, right? And... You know, but I carried a, you know, like a certain attitude about what I thought the answers were. Like, this is what I would say. And then I, then my first church was in Blind River, Ontario, which, uh, if you've ever driven through there, it's a beautiful area, right on Lake Huron. And uh, right next to the community is Mississauga First Nation. And uh, so there were a lot of people in the, in the school, the community. It was a real blend of people from a European and a, and a First Nations background. And, and we had uh, some lovely First Nations people in our church. And I still remember the kind of this, this moment, a bit of like this, this transformative moment in my thinking. I was having lunch at the 17 Restaurant, very creatively named. It was, on, it was called Highway 17 Restaurant. Do you know what highway it was on? It's on Highway 17. And... Um, uh, with a Christian First Nations leader. And um, we were talking about like some of the, just the, the struggles in the community, the social ills, right? The brokenness. And, and I can't remember what I, I would have said, but he, he might have felt like I, I didn't know enough to really have, an, uh, to know how to properly respond. So he said to me, Rusty, you have to understand. So many people of these people in this community here um, were people that were taken away from their moms and dads. They did not grow up in a loving home. They did not have the investment and the care and the love of, of mothers and fathers. And they grew up like that. And then maybe at some point they had kids and they had never been parented and they didn't even know what that looked like because they had been taken out of that. And those parents that they were taken from were so heartbroken 
You know that they, they turn to different things to cope with, with the pain? He said, Rusty, it's created a generational trauma. You can't say that was 30 years ago. That was 50 years ago. Like, you have to understand, Rusty, the experience. And for me, that was like something changed in that conversation. And I felt something that I'm not sure that I had felt before. I felt compassion. But I had never taken time to listen, to ask, to understand, to know. I just thought there were answers that needed to be given. Jesus says, do you really see the person? Do you seek to understand, to know where they're coming from, why they feel what they feel, why they do what they do. Jesus, there's another encounter in Luke 19, right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the wee little man who's up in the tree to see Jesus. No one wants to talk to him because he's a tax collector, he's the traitor, he's an outcast, and Jesus walks into the village and he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and he says, I must come to your house today. I just love it. He's going to force it. He's like, hey, can I, not even like, can I come to your house? He's like, I'm coming to your house, whether you like it or not. I'm, I'm getting to know you. You got a story, man. I got to know your story. And so he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for lunch. Pastors also have that gift. And... We're not sure what all happened in that conversation, but we know that Zacchaeus was transformed. Everything he got from everybody else was answers and truth and treating him the way he deserved to be treated. And then this one guy walks into town and treats him better than he deserves. And for Zacchaeus, it was transformative. And what was it? He encountered the grace of God in the person of Jesus. So, so church, we need to see before we speak. We need to be a church when people come in with all of their mess and all of their brokenness that is inclined to give, to treat people better than they deserve because we've been treated and continue to be treated better than we deserve by God to be people who give others the benefit of the doubt, because that's what grace does. The church needs to be a place um, for broken people to come and to, yes, hear truth, but to experience the fullness of God's grace. Because it's grace that transforms a grace that is coupled with the truth. Grace sees the person. Grace seeks to understand the person uh, as an individual. What I love about God, what I love about Jesus is He knows us individually. He knows you. 
He knows you. He knows what you're coming from. He knows your experiences. He knows all the quirks and the quirks. He knows you. And His care for you is specific, is individual. Um, I have three daughters. Can you pray for me? Can we just stop right now? And could you pray? We've got two teenagers now. They're great kids. They're great kids. Um, but could you still pray? What I learned really quick, and anyone who's been parents of multiple children knows that kids are different from one another, even if they come from the same mommy and daddy. And Annika, my oldest, and Britta, my second, were like, I realized pretty quick through trial and error that they are two very different kids. So when it came to exacting discipline and giving truth to my children, I learned that I had to do it differently with Britta than I did with Annika. Okay? Because Annika, she was kind of like, you know, if she was going to be uh, disciplined, accountable for something, she was going to show it didn't phase her one bit. Kind of clench her jaw. No, it's fine. Yeah, I'm okay. Um, doesn't bother me. Britta. Um, if I did, if I approached her the way I approached Annika, with truth, hard truth, discipline, um, she, she probably wouldn't talk to me for a week. Like, like seriously, like I, I remember that, like, whoa, like a broken spirit. And that's when I realized these are two different kids. And 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 if if I want to, if I want my influence to be to lead them into health and life. I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to respond to them individually, right? So if you're a parent, you know what that's like. And you know what? They're no different today. Grace sees the individual person and, and, see, and seeks to apply truth and love rightly to them in a way that they can receive and understand in their in their own unique situation. And so I guess the third point is this. Speak the right truth. There are all sorts of truths that we can speak, but, but there are better truths than other truths. In the sense that there are some truths that are helpful, that, that need to be heard, that build up, and then there are other ones that pile on. What does it look like to speak the right truth? These women that were, um, you know, had sexual sin in, in a couple of these stories. Jesus could have come and he could have spoken the truth. You know, God's will is, the Bible does say, you should not have sexual relationships outside of marriage. And look what you've done and look the mess it's made. So do that differently. That would have been true. But you remember in John chapter 4, he meets that woman at the well that Samaritan woman, and, and he finds out she's been married and divorced how many times? Five times. That takes work. It's not easy. You've got to be messed up. And now she's living with the sixth guy. Get your act together. But Jesus sees beyond the problem. He sees to the person, and he recognizes Oh, you know, all that stuff at the top, that's the symptom. Jesus isn't interested in treating symptoms. He's interested in the cause. He's interested in the root. And so he says to the woman, he says, you know, 
You know, you're drinking water that will not satisfy you, will not quench your thirst. I have something to offer you. I have living water to offer you that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And he's showing, he's essentially saying, you know, your problem is you're trying to find love. You're find, trying to find your worth in the affection of men. That won't work. There's something better. You need to find your affection in the love of God, which is greater. That's true. So Jesus, he was interested in speaking the right truth. And that's what grace is interested in. Not just truth, but the right truth in the right way at the right time. In fact, I throw those verses up there. I think Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is what Paul says to us. He says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of say, grace. Jesus is full of grace. Let your conversations be always full of grace. Seasoned with salt. Salt's a preservative, right? So that you may know how to answer everyone. In other words, be wise. God, you're going to need wisdom from God. There is no script. There is no script in all of these situations. But when you go into and you're in, you're in relationship with people, right, that, that have brokenness, that have sin, right, um, let your conversations always be full of grace. Be inclined to treat people better than they deserve. Consider what's the truth that I can speak to this person that will lead them to life. Because it says in Proverbs, words have the power of life and death. So, so what Paul is saying is don't have a cookie-cutter approach. I've met people with a cookie-cutter approach. It doesn't work. Grace is not a cookie-cutter approach. It's seeking the wisdom of God to, to after, after seeing the person and seeking to understand the wisdom of God to share the right truth. Speak the right truth. And then the last thing I want to say is that grace involves patience. I think we can be guilty of giving grace at the beginning, but that can run out pretty quick. And maybe we need to, at times we need to give more grace to ourselves because we get really hard on ourselves. Maybe, maybe, maybe you need to give yourself more grace or receive more grace from God, but, but grace is patient. You know, as, as people and as a church, we might, want, um, we might want people to change quickly. You're welcome here, but change quickly, please. You're welcome here, and now I'm going to give you something you need, and I told you once. Why am I having to tell it a second time? Grace is patient. Grace bears you know, Jesus, it is said by John, the very next verse there in John 1, 16, after John said he came full of grace and truth, the next words are these, out of the fullness, out of his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I love that description. How much grace does God give to us? Grace upon grace upon grace. In other words, it's a way of saying it's an unending well of grace that flows from God 
towards sinners who need it. It never runs dry. This is God's heart. He's inclined to treat better people better than they deserve. Grace is patient. So I don't know if there's some situation in your life where you're feeling that tension between truth and grace. Um, what would it look like for you to kind of take all of this, take the example of Jesus and these principles, what would it, would it look like for you to be a person who is full of grace? There's no script. But God, by His Spirit, gives us wisdom. Um, to know how to be people both of truth and grace. But that starts by knowing God's grace in our life. That's where it all begins. And do you need God's grace? This is where you're all supposed to kind of shake your head. But don't if you don't think you do. If you don't think you do, then don't. But this table up, but, and, and, if, and if you're not sure if you do, then please don't eat this. And please don't drink this. Just feel free to let it pass you by if you don't think you're in need of God's grace today, okay? Because this, is a, this table here is all about the grace of God, right? This bread represents Jesus' body, which is broken for us, and the cup represents Jesus' blood, which is shed for us, right? For poor sinners that we might be rich in forgiveness, in life with God. So as we... Um, come to this table to take this. Uh, this is a way of, of celebrating God's grace and being reminded of our need for that. Jesus expended himself so that you could be forgiven, right? so that your guilt and your shame could be resolved, so that you could have new life and eternal life. And that's life that we receive through faith. Because I don't know if you heard it a couple of times there. The, the first verses we read there in Ephesians chapter 2. You've been saved by God's grace through faith. How do we God wants to give a gift, but you have to receive the gift. You have to receive the gift of God's grace, the gift of this life, the gift of forgiveness. And how do we do that? By putting our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In fact, at the end of the story... We stopped right before the end in Luke 7. After he, Jesus turns to the woman after addressing Peter, he says, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, his final words, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith. Grace is available to all of us. This life is available to you. And it's something that we receive, not through our efforts, no, but through faith in Jesus and what He has done for us on the cross. And so it might be that there's some of you here, because I don't know all of you, I don't know where you're coming from, I don't know your, what your status is in your relationship with God, but it might be that today is a day when you need to receive God's grace, His saving grace. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. You need to receive this gift from God, this gift of life. This can be the moment where you put your faith in Jesus and say, I forgive my sin, Lord. I need your mercy. I give my life to you. I trust fully in you as my Lord and Savior. 
Maybe there's some of you in here that need to pray that prayer and receive God's grace. Do it. If you haven't done that, do that. This is a prayer that if you want to um, receive God's grace in that life today, I mean, just in this moment as, the, as these baskets of bread are passed, you can just take a moment and you can, between you and God, you can just pray that prayer even now and confess your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have already done that, um, let's just take this time as, uh, kind of as, as, we, as we reflect as the baskets are being passed just to commune with God and praise Him Thank Him for the grace that He has given you and the grace that He gives you each and every day. Right? That He gives us grace in place of grace already given. And just ask Him, Lord, would you, would you work that in me so powerfully that you, you show me what it looks like to be grace to other people? Because there's a statement in, in the book of Acts that it, I find really powerful. Um, in Acts chapter 4, it says about the first church that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. They cared for one another. Why? Because they knew the power of God's grace in their life. And when they saw that God was inclined to bend towards them in spite of their sin, they turned and they inclined themselves towards others. So just ask God to, to show you what it would look like in your relationships, in the, in the situations you're in, to, to embrace grace. I'm going to just pray it before we take this together, and I'll invite the worship team and the, and the servers to come and up, uh, join us while I pray. Father, we thank you that you are this type of God. You could have just said that I am the Lord, the Lord, the one who punishes every wrongdoing. And Lord, we know that you are a just judge and you do, um, you do right every wrong. But we also know the gospel, the good news that you sent your son to the world to go on that cross and to take it on our behalf, to pay our debt so that we could be saved that we could have life. We thank you for the grace that you have expressed to us in your son, Jesus. Just even now, Lord, as we take this together, just stir in us a renewed thrill and amazement um, over the mercy that you have on us. Just over that word, but. Like maybe we just like, or just help us just to kind of meditate on that word, but, and just how incredible that is. While we were dead, deserving of wrath, but because you loved us, you were rich in mercy. We're just uh, amazed by your grace. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.